Nelson Mandela had so much compassion for his brothers and sisters. People don't realize it's about the Beatles, but they knew they were brilliant. One story in every human being that defines who you are. Do we film on a volcano that's just about to explode? But the reason this mail pack has been astoundingly successful is because there are pictures of rabbits on the envelope. I mean, I think there's something about chaos, right? It either, either you run from it or you run towards it. And for me, there was really this in instance of wanting to run towards it. Welcome to Great Minds, and our guest today is the founder and CEO of Jackman Reinvents, Joe Jackman. Welcome, Joe. Thank you so much, Matt. It's a treat to be here. And it's great to have you. And Joe, you are uh, a genuine deep thinker. Your work to help organizations navigate reinvention of the customer experience uh, is so important and so critical to success for your clients and we all need that today more than ever. I'd love to go back, Joe, early in your career. You have such an interesting background. You started off more on the creative side, uh, going back to what you were doing all the way back to 89 at Perennial. And I know you held a number of CMO gigs for some pretty big companies. But I'd love to go back to your reflections on those early creative roots and how that shaped what you're doing today. Yeah, so if you go back in, in the early days, uh, you know, family life was incredibly formative for me. Uh, last of six kids, you know, university age uh, kids when I was, uh, you know, my older sisters were off to university when I was, you know, nine, 10 years old. And, and I got this window into a world that was just so much different than the average, you know, uh, grade schooler would have. And it really shaped the way I thought about not only uh, creativity and thinking more broadly and being curious and all that, but also just about change. You know, if I, if I go back and I say there was a scene in 1970 in Windsor, Ontario, just across the river from Detroit. Um, and at that time, you know, Nixon's a U.S. president and, you know, there's incredible social unrest and my sisters are like incredibly politically active. And, and every day for a whole summer, you know, when other kids are playing ball in the field, I, you know, I'm going to like sit-ins and, and uh, protests and stuff. And, and I kind of got onto this idea that just because things are the way they are doesn't mean they'll stay that way if people put their minds to it. And I think later on, you know, of course, I went and got a design school education in industrial design. And, and these things started to come together where I realized that creativity and, and as you say, deeper thought, you know, just uh, and, and a, almost a, a wariness of the status quo got baked into me in those early years. Um, you know, as a kid, and I didn't realize it until, you know, years later, I wrote a book, um, it launched earlier this year. And, um, and the editor asked me, like, wh where did this whole obsession uh, with change uh, start? And I really hadn't thought about it until, um, until that moment. And, and I, I recalled that summer. And, you know, I, I always love the Robin Williams expression. Um, you know, I, was, I, I grew up in Canada, half my family's American, half Canadian. But um, Robin Williams' quote was, you know, Canada's like a nice apartment over a meth lab. <laughs> and, and, you know, in 1970, America was like cooking <laughs> full time. 
almost like it is today. Um, Canada is like a loft apartment over a really great party, you know? Keep it down, hey! But yeah, that's that's sort of the roots of creativity. And then there's this desire to, to do stuff, like to create stuff, to build stuff. That's what, that's all I wanted to do. And design school gave me some some skills in that regard. But it was this orientation towards okay, let's let's make change. Let's let's you know, change is good. And, and Joe, as you've evolved into a great mind, you were also influenced and got to learn from some great minds very early in your career. Who comes to mind when you reflect upon that now? Yeah, it, you know, so many, as I'm sure many of your guests would would uh, point to. The things that I, I reflect on now in design school, you know, of course, I paid attention to, you know, the greats in industrial design. Dieter Rams comes to mind, um, you know, the great uh, design lead of Braun. And that whole idea of form over function and the Bauhaus school and so on. So I was, you know, in, in, in creative terms, that was those were heavy influences. And guys like Don Watt, I don't know if that name would be familiar to you, but he was, you know, a global design leader, uh, a Torontonian. Um, and I, I got a chance to work for him for about two and a half years as a young kid. And, um, you know, but beyond that, business leaders, like what I, what I was upset, like I, I have this personality where, if there's something I think I can learn or I want to know, like I'll drive people crazy. I mean, there was this guy, I've lost touch with him now, is a guy named Ed Ogiba and he worked in a product innovation consultancy. And, and I, I thought, wow, there's a whole discipline around how you create new products and up the odds of success. So, you know, I must have, you know, invited Ed to lunch 20 times and, hey, can I come hang out at your office? I was a young kid doing freelance design work and stuff. And, um, but I just wanted to get as much, knowledge from others as possible but the you know reflecting on you know, who did i learn from this might be odd uh, given what i've ended up doing but the great speakers you know i i read a lot of you know the the works of churchill the speeches he gave martin luther king well i don't know what will happen now we've got some difficult days ahead but it really doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop. And I don't mind. And I used to listen to his, his speeches over and over again, you know, uh, on these crappy little audio tapes. And, um, and the reason that matters, I think, today is because, as you know very well, and I've listened to many of your podcasts and, and know some of your guests, you know, the art of persuasion is fundamental to anything. To, to, you know, change of any kind, certainly in the marketing realm yeah, and, and also in the political realm and socially and, and so on. And I think, you know, what I learned in, in listening and reading, you know, studying uh, even U.S. presidents, the great communicators, is how words count, how words are powerful and can change people's minds. And, you know, I always loved... Um, uh, I think it was Obama who said about, you know, Bill Clinton, the, you know, the great explainer of everything. Uh, and, and just that ability to bring people in and get them to grasp things that maybe are unfamiliar or a little scary. And, and okay, let's settle down and let's sort of look at what the possibilities are here and why these things might matter and important. You know, you learn a lot from just listening to great speakers and speeches. Do, do you worry for our future 
forget about the COVID-19 era, but so much of our communication now is via text, email, WhatsApp, WeChat, whatever it might be. And I find for younger people in particular, looking someone in the eye and being able to just forget about make a great speech, just to have a conversation without Mm -hmm. preparation is more of a struggle than it used to be. Do you see some of that? Oh, completely. In fact, one of the things I'm excited about these days is the advent of video, you know, on social platforms. And I think it touches on your, your, your point, you know, at least in a short form world of communication, uh, video is starting to bring back the personification of feeling and not only message, like you and I are connected here visually and, uh, and it helps people understand. I think it's 50% of communication is, you know, facial expression and body language. And, and, you know, I miss that. There was a, it was a time when, you know, we, we just, everything got obviously compressed, but it got flattened as well. Uh, and we lost the dimensionality of, of communication as you're suggesting. And, and I do believe that is coming back. I mean, YouTube as a platform is, you know, one of the most popular, you know, lots of, quicker form. But, you know, the sad part, I think, um, you know, and while I grew up, you know, roughly in the era that you did, where things like long form advertising was, was important, you know, to tell a story, I think about David Ogilvy and, you know, perfecting that art of, of telling a story and bringing people in and getting them to the right conclusion. Um, you know, I, I lament that that's gone for the most part, but it's coming back in other ways. It's coming back in content. And and the difference is that I can absorb it, you know, at my leisure in in, ver- in a variety of modes, you know, while I'm traveling. I mean, here we are on a podcast. And, and I think in some ways that is the rebirth of that notion of human to human communication. You know, I, I think you're right. I, I want to come back to that, but let's return to the area of design, which the last 10 years or so, and I guess in my mind, you go back to, you know, Steve Jobs and Johnny Ive and the original team Mm -hmm. at Apple, where it really moved from the fringe to the mainstream. Mm -hmm. What are your observations on the contemporary evolution of design as it relates to both consumer products and to our industry? Mm-hmm. So it's a fantastic question because, you know, I'm old enough to remember the days when, you know, you could see a, a cover story in a Fortune magazine or a fast company, and it would be talking about design thinking as a breakthrough and that the small group of enlightened companies, Apple being, you know, one of the poster examples, you know, had embraced uh, design disciplines and understood the power uh, that it had to differentiate not only physical objects, but also the experience. And, you know, thankfully those companies uh, and others and many practitioners taught the business world the value of all that. So fast forward to today, when I'm not saying that's the norm, you can still find a lot of dreck, you know, out there in design uh, terms, but n- more and more companies have normalized in regard to the application of design thinking and and aesthetic values and so on. I think the next gen, if if you know, I'm always thinking about where does tr- 
you know, true and meaningful differentiation come from? And there was a time when in, in a world of undesigned objects and experiences and so on, design was a tiebreaker. Today, where design is becoming more and more the norm, thankfully, uh, it's deeper meaning that is the tiebreaker. And, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm really noticing both in data and then observationally the emergence of what I call the values economy. You know, we're seeing it everywhere. Little, little faint signals, bigger ones, you know, whether it's Victoria's Secret being offside of social sentiment or, you know, the maybe Dove Real campaign for beauty or, or Nike and Colin Papernick, you know, these, these sort of tells on what the future brings. And when, when we have a completely designed world where everything is thoughtfully created and, and executed, I think it's what does it mean and how does it deliver, um, you know, value beyond simply financial value or cultural value? How does it deliver human value? And I think that's where we're going as a as a uh, commercial society, as a consumer society. A lot of people don't believe that, um, but I can tell you, there's more signs today and evidence that that is the case, um, and and I certainly believe it. Yeah, no, I, I do too. And I certainly think that um, connection of head to heart, um, that's really the pathway to the wallet, you know, for the mm -hmm. future. And that's, and, and that is a, it's a political expression, but it's all politics are local. But I think that applies here too. I think people really care about what happens in their communities and how companies and brands recognize their responsibility and their opportunity to help mm -hmm. better communities, large and small. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, there's a raging debate going on. I, I think the gentleman who leads um, Salesforce is sort of right in the heart of, of that with the, the declaration of, you know, companies being more than uh, profit. And it was interesting just recently in the New York Times with the last couple of weeks, I was reading an article about uh, Milton Friedman. And I think it was roughly 20 years ago that he said, you know, the purpose of a corporation is to maximize profit, full stop. And, and that sort of set in motion a lot of things that we are either enjoying now or in many cases suffering from now, uh, globalization being uh, you know, a big example. Is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? But I think what the, the small set of leaders who say it has to be more than simply stake shareholder profit in order to be successful today. Uh, the ecosystem is too small in this you know, very large world really for us to have these consequences that, that you know, just show up down the road like globalization brought. And um, you know, we need to be more holistic in the way we think of these things. And we have to take an active role in, in areas where we'd say, oh, that's not for us. Well, look, if all your customers are suffering or they don't trust you or, you know, one, one uh, you know, way or another, they don't have jobs, you know, we, we have to accept responsibility in, in, a, in a different kind of way. And, and I'm not actually being, you know, this isn't tree hugger stuff. This is, you know, just being smart, enlightened business people, understanding what the world is uh, evolving toward and, and then figure out how to make money within that context. Um, and, and the benefits will be rich and, and, and multiple, I think. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree more. So you had tenures at um, two big operations uh, in the retail space, 
Old Navy, part of the Gap family, and Duane Reed, which is a huge New York institution. One of the many subjects that has gotten lost in the shuffle pre-COVID-19 is the challenge retailers like that are facing to -hmm. continue to be successful businesses. And you see, you know, empty retail stores everywhere in towns large and small. You see empty stores in the 50s on Madison Avenue, you know, which was always a creme de la creme area. And uh, I go up there frequently or used to, to go to the Friars Club up on 55th and three or four of the stores that were on that block on the subway walk uh, from 53rd to 55th, Dunhill, you know, all out of business. And those happened to be high end, Old Navy and Dwayne Reed, certainly more mass market. Our government is not addressing at all the challenges uh, large and small towns face as the fabric of downtown is really being frayed as these small businesses, and in some cases, large businesses, are challenged. How do we move that, Joe, into the mainstream of dialogue? Because I don't see as a society how we function if the retail communities where we all live are you know, on the verge of going bust. Mm-hmm. I, I think the uh, the issue is, as you're suggesting, extreme, because if, if you look at a macro view of Western economies, mostly and certainly uh, America, you know, manufacturing and and resources, you know, minerals and such, uh, mining, you know, these were the backbone of of uh, early stage economies. And as manufacturing waned in, the, in an era of globalization, what grew in its place to give people jobs, to, you know, to, to make the economy run, it was services. And inclusive of services was retail and hospitality and professional services and so on. And, and how short-sighted is it you know, for those who are at high levels of managing the economy, whichever perch, to think that we could allow uh, the the service economy, uh, inclusive of retail and and hospitality, as sort of two big engines, to to get decimated, have consequences for all the people that work within them in the extreme, and not feel like on an ongoing basis until we get through the crisis uh, that you know we can sort of let this ride. Like that's just not an option for today. Um, And because there aren't the manufacturing jobs there used to be, you know, all the things that are sold here uh, mostly are, are made somewhere else. And, and so I think, you know, one of the things that I'm fascinated about these days is grand strategy, if you're familiar with that expression and grand strategy was simply, you know, the higher order of governments, nations, uh, economies, thinking about longer term plans. And what we've evolved to, I think in Western society with a few exceptions, but we've evolved to this very, very short term thinking. Certainly our political cycles reinforce that. Um, quarter by quarter shareholder you know, pressures reinforce that. And 
if we don't start to get back to playing a mid to long game and trying to understand what are the things that are important, like, you know, I, I heard some commentators talking a little bit about um, globalization and we knew it was coming. We participated in it for, for good reason because it was a more efficient system because it created, you know, much more opportunity. It, it kept economies growing, et cetera. But the downside, or at least the things to mitigate from a risk point of view, were actually quite you know, clear. Well, what happens to all the people that are trained to manufacture things? What do they do when all of that you know, goes away? Uh, what happens in terms of the safety net as people make that transition, as economies you know, shift and implicate jobs and so on? There was no master plan. You know, and 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 this is a this is a problem for for Western societies. Um, I, I actually think one of the reasons we're getting into some deep, you know, thinking here on on politics. But I think one of the reasons why, and it's so scary to think of it this way. But one of the reasons why non-democratic uh, states are being more su successful today. And populism is, is, you know, there's lots of causes for why populism, uh, but as part of that is because they're playing a longer game. And, and here we are, we're, you know, shifting from pillar to post, depending on what's going on. I think the days of grand strategy have to come back. Yeah, I mean, even the, think about the Marshall Plan and the rebuilding of Europe. I mean, these were kind of multi-decade initiatives with clear objectives, strategies to reach them, collaborative, okay, we're all in this together, the consequences are large if we don't get it right or get it done. And that's been lost in this kind of uh, immediacy, you know, tit for tat uh, dynamic that's happening, not just in America, but so many places in the world. Yeah. And it's not just the last four years. I mean, what we've gotten away from in, in the US and you hit it right on the head, is long-term planning. Everything is for the moment. Everything is for the soundbite. Everything is to play to the 24-hour news cycle. You know, it makes a hell of a lot of sense as a headline to say, I'm going to bring manufacturing jobs back to America. And I think there are some isolated examples where, you know, you look at the job, and it was with planning and foresight, that a lot of the German and Japanese automotive manufacturers mm -hmm. made years ago, they said, you know what? It's going to be better for us if we open some plants in the U.S. If we're employing people in this country, that's going to, it's going to sell more cars. It's also politically going to give us some air cover. And uh, it's going to you know, tariff proof us mm -hmm. if things go south you know, politically. And I think you know, that you've got so many of those cars now being built in America is an example that there are ways and pockets of opportunity there. But on the whole, you know, that ship has sailed in terms of things that were made in this country uh, mm -hmm. that are now being made in Vietnam or the Philippines or China or Malaysia. Um, mm -hmm. It's why the ports on the East Coast have pretty much all closed. I mean, mm -hmm. the port of New York is barely, you know, alive for anything. And it's because everything today comes into Seattle and Tacoma. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they then train it or truck it across the country. Just where goods come from mm -hmm. has changed o over mm -hmm. time. So, yeah, I hope we can get back to addressing some of that stuff because it's been, you know, 11, 12 years of paralysis now mm -hmm. 
between the Obama administration and all the trouble they had, you know, getting anything done with Congress. And of course, the last four years, you know, everything is polarized and everything is short term now in the U.S. Mm -hmm. You know, I I think there's some bright spots like I take uh, as much as these are intensely challenging, but also hopeful times, for example, in in um, in the social context, um, you know, Black Lives Matter. If you think about the civil rights movement, it actually was a grand strategy with very scrappy beginnings, but then a broad outline of what is it that we wish to achieve? You know, the women's movement, the exact same thing, like we're here, where is it we need to get to? What does that look like? That's one of the things I, 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 I've thought a lot about and written about is this, notion of being so clear on what outcome do you wish to have you know what i've learned about strategy is no amount of strategy will take you to a place you have not defined you know define the outcome you wish to achieve whether it's business or it's in a political sense or socially and and get that really clear in everyone's mind not just yours and then you can set your course and plan step by step to move to, towards it. And one of the things I've learned is, you know, about human nature is there is nothing more powerful than a community that's clear on where it is they want to get to. And, and that's what we do in, you know, in my work with helping companies get back to growth and relevance transformation um, is exactly that. And, and then, look, that's where we're going to go and we're going to obsess the outcome. And... And, and, and I, I take a lot of heart. I mean, the women's movement, there's a lot of uh, coverage, of course, about um, uh, Justice Ginsburg and her passing. And I think what an incredible 50 year journey, you know, that many were part of, but she was a, a central figure in. And, and it was really outcome focused. These things are, are fundamental. We must achieve them now, you know, step by step, year by year, decade by decade. And, you know, I, I, I'm a subscriber to the idea of creating movements. You know, you bring people in. That's why communication is such a critical piece of all of this is you bring them in and you, you help them see what is there and in, do it in ways that strike, you know, chords of relevance with them. And they say, yeah, that is important. And that does touch me. And I, I love what you said earlier that it isn't about my head. I, I can understand a lot of things, but when it gets really powerful is when I feel them. You know, I think today's strategies must be felt, not just understood. Talk about the book. Uh, I know it was a long time coming. Um, and, <laughs> yes. and, uh, and also, Joe, you know, so much has changed the last six, seven, eight months. Let's talk a little bit about the book. And if you were writing an addendum mm. or another chapter what would you validate and double down on and what perhaps has been invalidated by the last six, seven, eight months? Yeah. Your reputation for asking, you know, insightful, but also tough questions (laughs) (laughs) preceded you. Um, Yes. To give the context for your listeners, I wrote a book called the reinventionist mindset. It published in January. I was on a book tour you know, going to New York City and Los Angeles, and I'm having all this wonderful experience of, wow, I actually got the book done, which I, I didn't think I would. And it's about change. And it's about what happens when change is upon you. And, 
you know, what, what can you do not only when it is, but also how can you see it coming and maybe change you, you, the way you think about change. And then of course, fast forward a few weeks, you know, I'm in Los Angeles with my family and March 14th and, you know, we come back, uh, you know, back home and, and we say like, yikes, what's happening now? So six months later, I'm reflecting on the book and, and what I would conclude is, yes, there should be an addendum, which is to say um, two things. One, what's in the book learned helping to transform 40 or so companies uh, and, and distilling down, like what, what are the factors for success? You know, and there are five of them in, in my experience, as I talk about in the book, do those things, but like get really good at, at doing them now, because we had a, actually a lecture we didn't realize. Change was coming in the business world fast because of technology, et cetera, competitive intensity. But in the context of a global pandemic, it's, it's come in a way that is changing everything. And so I'd say, you know, uh, those principles, I think, hold true today. And they're probably even more valuable, you know, if I, if I can say it that way, uh, than they were even back in January. What I would change is the, the point around how we connect with humans to other humans in a business context, the social context, uh, in light of incredible pressure to, you know, you can't do that anymore. You have to you figure, figure out new ways. You, you, know, you don't have the luxury of, you know, the freedom to travel, all those kinds of things. The human to human aspect, I would have dialed up. And, and by that, I mean, like brands, the future is human. I mean, I think it might've been Steve Jobs that said that. Um, and by that, I mean that if we don't start in business to get really serious about values, shared values and beliefs between enterprises and consumers, you know, those led by humans, those engaged in purchasing product services um, as humans. And if we don't find the kind of connectivity um, fast, we're going to be end up being in a in this terrible, you know, overly commoditized world. Functionality of any kind, I can get anywhere today. I have a million options. Google, you know, anything. Google shoes, and you'll get three and a half billion citations. Um, what is the tiebreaker? The tiebreaker today is the degree to which we can make true emotional connections um, between. You know, large organizations have, uh, that, that do things and, and large communities all the way down to individuals that buy things. And that's been true for 50 years in advertising. It's just more true today. Yeah. Uh, so that's what I, I would write and, you know, is different or at least emphasize differently. No, uh, terrific insights. And Joe, I'd love to talk about some of the work you're doing to help your clients navigate these tough times. Uh, and you know, is anybody looking at medium and long-term planning? Uh, beyond that, how do we survive into next week? Do you have any perhaps silver lining stories that mm -hmm. we can hang our hats on as you're helping companies transform and navigate this incredibly challenging period? I'll give you one that I, I think is um, maybe hard to believe on the surface. So you remember JCPenney in the Ron Johnson era and, you know, much has been written about, you know, what was 
smart and thoughtful there and what went wrong and why. And, you know, I wasn't involved in that era of JCPenney, but I did sign up to help them uh, pre-pandemic. And, you know, fantastic leadership team. And I, and I know Jill Saltow, the CEO, uh, we had worked together in the transformation of Joann's, uh, the fabric and craft retailer. And it's, it's being led by a fellow I know, Wade, Wade Michelon who was her CFO, and uh, he's doing a fantastic job with the team. And it's it's just growing like crazy at the moment. So so Jill and I had, had, had done some work together. and um, But we signed up with JCPenney at, you know, at a time when everyone would give us a mulligan, I'm sure, to say like, okay, that's going to be a long shot. But pre-pandemic, pre the debt load, you know, I, I, there's a lot of things we transform, customer engagement primarily, but, you know, we we're not in the business of figuring out debt and, and all that. And debt caught up with them when, when sales went off a cliff because of the pandemic. But what I can tell you is before that came about, we got into understanding the customers of JCPenney, like right into the heart of America. Why did that brand resonate in the first place? What is it truly all about? And what are its customers caring about? Not on the surface, you know, hey, I want value. I want you know, selection of styles, whatever it may be, but who are they and what do they deeply care about? And that work led us to a couple of ahas that we we took and we reshaped the strategy, uh, the leadership team with, with support from me and my team. And we started to apply it and it started to yield incredible results. And what it taught me, of course, then the pandemic comes and they're going to come through bankruptcy, as I understand, through, you know, the media coverage and so on. But what it taught me was there are no lost causes in business. The, the silver lining is that, you know, someone asked me a question, is there any business that you would say no to? You know, if somebody said, look, we need to update, we need to refresh, transform, reinvent, whatever. Um, the only one I almost said no to was Dave and Buster's um, <laughs> when when a private equity partner asked me if if we would come and help with that and and we had a great run and and um, and and did something quite extraordinary with that business, leading to an IPO. But but I would say if you can get at the human uh, threads, human in the sense of who formed this company, you know James Cash Penny, what were his beliefs? What was the DNA? Why why was it born? Who in the customer community loves it and why? And wh who are they? And what do they care about deeply? And if you can start to get those strands, they, they'll, they'll start to show you a way forward. And I, I appreciate sometimes this can sound abstract, but I don't believe there is a business, uh, and I'm not talking about you know, incredible debt loads and, and the financial construct that either says, yes, it's viable in the future or not. That's, that's not what I'm, I'm focused on. But, you know, given the wherewithal to, to make change, and it isn't a Hail Mary pass like in the Johnson era with JCPenney, it's more of a, let's be clear, who are we for? What do they care about? What do we share in common? Now, let's start to rebuild on that basis everything our value proposition, our customer experience, the way we show up, what we say, how we say it, all of those things. And piece by piece, step by step, we started to saw, see that business turn. And then of course, you know, pandemic comes along, everything gets paused. But I think that, it, it, you know, your question, Matt, was around, is there silver linings? With the right 
lens and the right spirit of collaboration. And I would selfishly say with, with the mindset, you know, that I talk about in the book, um, you can get anything back to growth and relevance. Really, I, I think that is, and, and, and that's why I believe as, as terrible, you know, we're talking about politics a lot, as terrible as times are, you know, in, in a political sense and socially, I feel it can all be fixed. It's just going to take some folks to, to say what's important. What do people really need? What do they care about? Who are we to them? How can we help them? And yes, there's rivalries and all those dynamics and so on. But, you know, maybe it's a little naive to say, but if we could just rise up a little bit, not, not a lot, but a little bit up to, wouldn't it be better as an outcome for us as a society, as a country, as a global ecosystem, as a climate ecosystem, to you know get together and ask and answer some of these questions together and and get a get an outcome clear in our mind it doesn't have to be a big one it can you know these can be sort of step by step let's get that done and let's move forward and guess what happens you start moving forward and you start picking up pace and if you remember the the equation of momentum it's mass times velocity equals momentum mass of people engaging of of coming to the same conclusions of doing it together times velocity the faster you move why do you move faster hey we're making some progress let's start to do this let's let's pick up the pace here and suddenly you have the, the most magic powerful force of all second to human nature which is momentum and i think that's what we just need to do today in in many of the situations we're finding challenging yeah, fantastic. I think that, that's exactly the right uh, message. Uh, and uh, it was really a lot of fun to talk to you. I'm so glad Katie suggested it. Uh, well, thank you. I appreciate it. It's good to meet you. Uh, and I, I'm, I'm now a, a devoted fan. Thank you very much for listening. And for more content just like this, visit advertisingweek360.com. Production on this episode was by Jack Hirschman and Brendan Porter. And original music was by Ian Levy.